Esther 6, verse number 1, and the word of the Lord reads this. On that night could not the king sleep, and he commanded to bring the book of the records of the chronicles, and they were read before the king. And it was found written that Mordecai had told of Bexana and Teresh, two of the king's chamberlains, the keepers of the door. He sought to lay hand on King Azararus. And the king said, What honour and dignity hath been done to Mordecai for this? Then said the king's servants that ministered unto him, There is nothing done for him. And the king said, Who is this in the court? Now Haman was come into the outward court of the king's house to speak unto the king to hang Mordecai on the gallows that he had prepared for him. And the king's servants said unto him, Behold, Haman standeth in the court. And the king said, Let him come in. So Haman came in. And the king said to him, What shall be done unto the man whom the king delighteth to honour? And Haman thought in his heart, To whom would the king delight to do honour more than to myself? And Haman answered the king, For the man whom the king delighteth to honour, let the royal apparel be brought, which the king uses to wear, and the horse that the king rides upon, and the crown royal which is set upon his head. And let his apparel and his horse be delivered into the hand of one of the king's most noble princes, that they may array the man with all whom the king delighteth to honour, and bringeth him on horseback through the street of the city, and proclaim before him, Thus shall it be done to the man whom the king delighteth to honour. Then the king said to Haman, Make haste, and take apparel and the horse as thou said, and do even to Mordecai the Jew that sitteth or sits in the king's gate. Let nothing fail of all that thou hast spoken. Then took Haman the apparel and the horse, and arrayed Mordecai, and brought him on horseback through the street of the city, and proclaimed before him, Thus shall it be done unto the man whom the king delighteth to honour. And Mordecai came, in, came again to the king's gate, but Haman hasted to his house mourning and having his head covered. And Haman told Zeresh, his wife, and all his friends, everything that had befallen him. Then said his wise men and Zeresh, his wife, unto him, If Mordecai be of the seed of the Jews, before whom thou hast begun to fall, they shall not prevail against him, but they shall surely fall before him. And while they were yet talking with him, came the king's chamberlains and hasted to bring Haman onto the banquet that Esther had prepared. Let's pray, shall we? Heavenly Father, we just thank you for the opportunity to open your word, your holy scripture, Lord. And we lift it to a place of authority because it is all authoritative. It's sufficient, Lord, for life. It has everything that we need. And even, Lord, as we look into this Old Testament and Esther and the Jews and that people group, we can see truths and applications for us today. There are lessons to be learned. Well, we're going to see Haman and his prey. We're going to see how your hand is working, even in the small things, even in the unseen things. How, Lord, you're doing things now that we won't even see why until much later. But Lord, you're always working. And we thank you for that. We thank you for your work amongst your people all those years ago. For your work amongst the people preserved the messianic line. And Lord, if Haman had gotten his way, there would have been no Messiah through the tribe of Judah. 
with no Messiah, there'd be no Saviour. And we stand here redeemed because of our Saviour, the Lord Jesus Christ, the Messiah, the Anointed One. And we thank you for that. I pray, Lord, that you would just settle our hearts to hear from you this afternoon, Lord. What is it you want to say to us? I pray that you would help me. Lord, use me in my weakness. Give me strength. Give me clarity. Help me to say everything that you want to be said. In Jesus' name. Amen. I'm going to tell you a story about two ducks and a frog. Now, you need to pay attention or you're going to miss the punchline in this one. So you've got to work this. But the story is told of two ducks and a frog who lived in a field far, far, far away. And they enjoyed their pond that was in that field. The ducks would swim. The frog would swim. And they enjoyed one another's company. Life was good in that pond, in that field, far, far away. But the pond started to dry up. The water level got lower and lower and lower and lower. Until one day, the trio of friends had to have a hard discussion. And they decided that really they had to leave that field and go to another field even further away where they could be happy once again and have a little pond to play in. The problem was the ducks could get up and fly, but the frog, he couldn't fly. So the friends thought about it, and between themselves they came up with a solution. What they would do is that the two ducks would take a stick, a branch, put it in their beaks, and create a little beam, and the frog would clamp the beam with its mouth. The ducks would fly away and the frog would fly away with it to live far, far away, happily ever after. So they get the scheme ready. They find their branch. The ducks take their position on the runway. Or the duckway. We'll call it the duckway. On the duckway, ready to go. The frog jumps on, clamps on, off they fly. It's working tremendously. They're heading to new pastures, to the promised land, and they're flying, they're flying. And as they're flying towards the the final field that they're going to, they're up in the air, and there's a farmer in the field, and the farmer in the field is amazed at what he's seeing, the ingenuity of what's going on. And he shouts out to the traveling trio, whose ingenious idea was that? To which the frog replies, Mine! <laughs> I'm glad you got that. I really worked that one. That's an illustration of pride comes before fall. <laughs> and what we're going to see with Esther when we resume here in chapter number 6 is that, that truth that pride does come before fall. And as we read that, I'm sure that you've seen and picked up the pride that was present within Haman. And we're going to see this come out tonight in Esther chapter number 6. Because if you remember in chapter number 5, we'd left it 
where uh, Haman had determined, if you remember, that he was going to kill Mordecai once for all. And he's gone back to his family, his friends, his cheerleaders, his yes men. And they've all said, yeah, you've got to build this gallows. And, you know, we're not talking noose here. We're talking steak, uh, a huge steak, bigger than any normal type of steak, where uh, Mordecai is to be impaled. So what's going to happen to Mordecai? Is he going to die? That was the cliffhanger we left it at last time round. But now we're in chapter number six and we're going to see these events unfold and we're going to see Haman's pride and we're going to see God's hand. We're going to see all of these things as we go through chapter number six. So Let's go through it together. And the first thing that we're going to have a look at is the recollection and the understandable question. We look at verse number one with me. Chapter number six says, And that night could not the king sleep. So here it is, a night in the palace and the king couldn't sleep. The, the Hebrew there, when it says that he couldn't sleep, it literally means sleep has fled from him. And I don't know if you've ever been in that place where sleep has fled from you. You're chasing it. It's torture. It is torture. It, it's, it's, it's not a coincidence why, you know, um, opposing armies, when, when they're not playing by the rules, to try and get prisoners to talk or interrogation, sleep deprivation is one of the number one tools. It's awful. It's absolutely awful. But the king couldn't sleep. Now, this seems like a small thing. But actually, actually, we're going to see that it's God working in the small things. And I think, church, we forget this. That God is his work in the small things as he is in the big things. Like we highlighted salvation this morning. And I was able to record the sermon, so we'll get it up online, even though technology failed us. But yes, God works big things. Salvation, the biggest of all. Calvary's cross, the biggest thing that has ever happened. Period. But that same God who works in these big things is working in the little things. And sometimes we don't see it. But that doesn't mean God isn't in it. And what we find here is that the king is asleep. Like I say, it's a small thing. But, you know, years before, what had happened all those years ago when Pharaoh's uh, daughter found baby Moses in the river? God used that small thing to do what? Deliver his people. Here the king can't sleep, but it's going to set in motion a chain of events that are going to see this story turn. And it's beautiful. And what I like about the king is that he, that he, he does. And, you know, <laughs> why I laugh at this is because I think sometimes this is what we do. Whenever we struggle to sleep, you pick up the Bible and read a book that's going to put you to sleep. Chronicles, maybe. So the king says, get me the emergency book. The book that will put me to sleep. You know, everybody has this where something they'll, they'll put on and, and it'll put them to sleep. Maybe some of you say, I'll put on your sermons, Pastor. That'll put me to sleep. But whatever it is, just that go-to. We're like, oh, I can't get to sleep. Time to bring in the big guns. So the king just makes this. Like, and it's a small thing. 
where he says, you know, bring the book of the records of the Chronicles. And they were read before the, the king. So you can imagine the scene. The king's there. He can't sleep. He's pacing the floors. And he gets his servants to go and get him the book of the Chronicles to read. And hopefully the dry and dusty record after record after record will put him to sleep. And as the, the records are being read, it just so happens that it was found written. Look at that verse 2. And it was found written. It's like a little incidental thing. This is not incidental. It may seem like a small thing. The king can't sleep and it just happened to be found written about Mordecai and how he'd foiled the assassination attempt against the king. And when we were there, when we looked at that in Esther, I said to you, you know, it seems like it just disappears and doesn't, doesn't you know, pay any further part. But God was using it for such a time. And this little thing, just, you know, the scripture says it's found written like it was nothing. It wasn't nothing. Nothing just happens when God's involved. You understand this? Nothing just happens when God's involved. The things that fall out are under the sovereignty of God. And these little things that could be incidental details are not incidental details. They're evidence of the sovereign hand of a supernatural God as he moves in his people. And at the time, Mordecai wouldn't have thought when he reported that this was going to be used for such a time. But God had it in reserve. And maybe God's doing a small thing in your life right now that you can't even see that he's reserving for some time down the line. Who knows? God knows. God knows. So this is no accident. You know, this book is not a book of accidents. It's not an accident that Esther became queen. It's not an accident that she found favor with the king. It's not an accident that the king couldn't sleep. And it's not an accident that this section of the chronicles of the records, of which there would have been hundreds, thousands possibly, is being read at that very time. So the account of the foiled assassination is read to the king. And in verse 3, the king says, you know, what, 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 what is the person that did this, that spared my life, that saved my life? What's been done for him? What's been done? So there's a recollection, and as the king is, is, is regaled of these tales, the understandable question for him, I don't know why it wasn't at the time, but God knows, is at this very time, he says, what have I done for this man that has done so much for me? Now, it just so happens that Haman arrives on the scene. The king said, who's in the court? Haman had come into the court of the king's house. Why is he there? He's there to speak about the, to the king and tell him about his plan to do away with Mordecai once and for all. So Haman comes into the situation and without any context, without any background, Haman answers the question that the king puts to him. Which leads us to 
the recommendation and the underlying assumption. Look at verse 6. So Haman came in, and the king said to him, What shall be done unto the man whom the king delighteth to honor? Now Haman thought in his heart, To whom would the king delight to do honor more than to myself? So straight away, Haman comes into this situation with this assumption that the king's talking about him. Now, what's the lesson for us? Let's make this practical. Here's the lesson. Context is king. Because if Haman had just said, well, king, why are you asking me that question? What's led you to ask me that question? Got a little bit of the background information, got the context, put it in its true light, he would have not responded in the way that he responded. But he didn't get the context. He didn't take time to assess the situation properly. And I think there's a warning in that. There's a learning in that. Why doesn't he do it? Because he's full of pride. And his pride leads him in his heart to say, I mean, this is Haman and his thoughts. His pride leads him to say, do you know what? The king couldn't be talking about anybody but me. I'm the bee's knees. I'm the man. Surely the king's talking about me. So I don't want to, uh, you know, waste time and, and talk about uh, and find out exactly what's, what's, what the context of this is. I know the king must be talking about me. What do I want? What does he answer him? Verse 7, And Haman answered the king, For the man whom the king delighteth to honour, this is pride upon pride upon pride. Because pride is false humility. It's falseness. And this is what he is. This is what Haman's doing. This is false. For the man, he's not talking about anybody else. What he should have said, Well, king, seeing as you're talking about me, this is what you should do for me. But he plays this game. He plays a game that you're talking about somebody else. Here's what he says. Give him the king's robes. Give him the king's horses. Give him the king's fanfare. And let him be led by a person of great importance throughout the land. And be paraded as the one whom the king delights in. So Haman's recommendation is is go all in. Do it all. As much as you can do for the one that's uh, spared your life. He doesn't know that. But that's what the king's thinking. But in his heart he's saying for the one that you want to honour, this is what you want to do. Now to me this shows that Haman had desires above his station and beyond his station. This showed me that Haman had desires to take the place of the king. And I think this is an important truth because there's a shadow here in Haman. There's a picture in Haman that points to one who is yet to come, but as has been, but is ultimately to become and presented to the world in Antichrist. Haman comes out of nowhere. Antichrist comes out of nowhere. Of course, Antichrist ultimately a picture of Satan. And was it not Satan in Isaiah 14 that was full of pride? I will be like the Most High. This is Haman. He wants the king's position. 
But in his pride, rather than uplifting himself, he's put himself in a hole. He's dug himself in. Why? He's full of pride. You know, pride's a terrible thing. Here's the problem about me saying that. Is that we all suffer from it. <laughs> all of us. All of us. Pastors especially. It can be the worst. You're lucky you have a very humble pastor. But... <laughs> <laughs> it can lend itself to pop upness, the pulpit. There's no doubt about it. We see it abused and used. Said pride is the only disease that makes everyone sick but the one that has it. I think that's a good description of pride. So, as we examine ourselves and just look, and, and, and you know, we're all prideful. But. There are people that see their pride and try and fight against it. And there are others that are oblivious to it. And that's a big difference. Because we're not perfect. We'll never be perfect until we are with the Lord ultimately in eternity. But here and now, we're working through that. And, and, and the thing to do is to be reflective. Not reflective to the point that you can't look at yourself in the mirror, but reflective to the point where you think, you know what, there's little areas I could probably do better in. And pride is one of those things. So what are some of the things that we can look for? Number one, fault finding. Now this is a pastor's neighbor. Because we live in a world where, you know, we know the Bible better than most people. That's the way we work. And so when people come and they say stuff, Meaning well, but theologically incorrect. You start to pick. Now, we need to defend true doctrine, but this is a different setting. And at times, pride can come in. That all you can see is the wrong rather than the right. What are the things that we need to look for? A harsh spirit. Now, again, I'm not talking about judging righteously. I'm just talking about being harsh all the time. And there are some Christians that are just harsh all the time. All the time. Now, again, we're so blessed. We don't have any of those Christians in here. And I mean that. But I have come across them. That literally, they're, they're toxic. Their attitudes, their harshness, all the time. And I think we have to have a balance. You know, we don't want to be weak. But at the same time, just all the time, it's just negativity, harshness, criticism. We need to uh, guard against that. Here's another sign of pride, defensiveness. Whenever somebody comes along, and especially those that God has put and gifted to the church, because (laughs) I've said this before, whether you believe it or not, pastors called by God, following the will of God, are gifted to the church. And we're responsible to teach from the word of God. We were looking at this in Peter, looking at in in other scriptures, that, you know, I have to give an account for you. And I want to do it with joy. But that means me teaching you, and you helping me, and we, we working together. But defensiveness is this. Whenever somebody, usually in pastoral leadership, comes along and says, do you know what? 
maybe, maybe the things you're doing are, are not quite what the Lord will have for you publicly. Pride puts the defensive walls up and says, who are you to speak to me? Who are you to talk to me about these things? But God has designed the church. He's put it together. And if the pastor's being biblical and true and the people of God are being biblical and true and the counsel comes from the word of God, then the one who's going to fight against their pride, even though it may sting what's being uh, taught from the scripture, they're going to reflect upon it and say, you know what? I am out of line a little bit here. But a prideful spirit walls up. You can't talk to me. I'm gone. Happens. Defensiveness. What well, is another aspect of pride? Presumption before the Lord. You know, humility approaches God with humble assurance in Christ Jesus. But if the humble or the assurance are missing from the equation, our hearts might be affected with pride. Now, we are to boldly approach the throne of grace, absolutely. But, you know, we still need to know who we are and who God is and approach him in the right way and to be humble in who we are. It's okay to be bold before God, but we can't forget that he's God. The prideful spirit almost places themselves so close to God that other people can't get near What's another example of pride manifesting? Desperation for attention. Pride is hungry for attention, respect, and worship in all its forms. This is pride is the, the fruit of all sin. Who's back to Satan himself? Isaiah 14. It's all about me. Me, me, me. That's pride. It's pride. What's the biblical message? It's not about you. It's not about me. It's about him. But pride doesn't have a place in that. Because to say truly and live truly, it's about him, means sacrifice. It means self-denial at times. It means humility and humbleness and meekness. But the prideful person, they want the attention. They want the glory. Again, this is why you can, you know, I'm reading this. And honestly, I'm saying this is why it's so dangerous in this pulpit. I can look at these things and see times where I have fallen into this. The pulpit can do that. But we've got to guard against it. What's another aspect? Neglecting others. Because when it's all about you, you can't see anybody else. You can't see them. All you can see is your life. And your wants and your needs. You, 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 you. There's no one another. There's no seeing somebody else is struggling because your tunnel vision. That's a prideful spirit. That's a prideful spirit. Now, don't get me wrong, there's times where you have to focus on yourself. But if that's a, a pattern of your life, I want to suggest you're full of pride. Oh, I'm not prideful. I come to church. Give me tithes, give me offerings. I pray. Maybe there's a bit of presumption before God. Pride. And what I'm saying to you tonight, church, is that we all need to guard ourselves from this. All of us. 
We have to help each other in this. And we have to be willing to take the correction when it comes. If it comes in the right way, in the godly way, as God has mandated it, sometimes we've got to take it in the chin and go, do you know what? That's a blind spot in my life. I I didn't see that. I need to do better. Because we're not about punishment. What we're about is trying to bring us together as we walk towards Christ. That we don't want to leave people behind. Haman was full of pride. And his pride is going to take a huge hit. Let's move on. Thirdly, as we see the realization and the unwanted depression. Look at verse 10. Then the king said to Haman, Make haste, take the apparel, take the horse, as you have said, and do even to Mordecai the Jew. Now imagine this man's face when he hears those words. I mean, talking about putting a pin in his bubble. It is burst. Burst. You know what? Sometimes the Lord will do these things in such a way that it will literally take you to the ground. He will put a pin in your pride that literally flattens you, that you're devastated. Do you know what? If that's what the Lord is doing, that's what you need. And if you respond to that in the right way, that's the greatest thing that can ever happen to you. Because the worst thing that could happen is the Lord lets you go on in your pride. Haman is not going to be let to go on in his pride. He is brought to the floor. Literally, this is a jaw-dropping moment for Haman. Mordecai. The Jew. His arch nemesis. The man that wouldn't bow to him. The man that wouldn't stand. The man that he couldn't get out of his mind. The man that he got so intensely mad at, he was willing to wipe out an entire ethnic body. And now all of his dreams, remember he's on, he's on Dream Mountain. He's the hand of the king. His enemy is going to be executed. He's come up with this amazing plan to build a stake on which Mordecai is going to be impaled upon. And then those Jews are going to be wiped out in months' time. Everything's going exactly how Haman wants it to go until the king says these words. Mordecai the Jew. So Haman's told in no uncertain terms by the king, and the king is still sovereign. He can't deny him. He can't do anything outside of the king's rule and reign. He's told to make haste and go and do what the king has asked him to do. Verse 11, he does it. Then took Haman the apparel, the horse, arrayed Mordecai, brought him on horseback through the street of the city and proclaimed before him, 
Thus shall it be done unto the man whom the king delighteth to honour. What an amazing turnaround this is. Now this would be the talk of the, certainly the king's gate, because this thing hasn't been done in darkness. This whole conflict has been out in the open. Mordecai has been in sackcloth and ashes before the king's gate. The letters have gone out about the Jewish people that they're going to be exterminated. No doubt Haman would have had his crowd. People would have been secretly on Mordecai's side. And now they see the next chapter in this latest saga is that, look, you've got to imagine these are real people, real situations. They know all this stuff. And then they see coming down the pathway, coming down the main thoroughfare towards the king's palace, the horse, oh, is it the king? What's all this fanfare? What's all this thoroughfare? What's all this big event? Is it the king? No, it doesn't look like a king. Uh, it must be Haman. He's, he's, the, he's the next in line. He's the right hand of the king. He's honoured by the king. No, it's not Haman. Who is this? It's closer and it gets closer and it gets closer to be revealed as Mordecai, the Jew, the enemy of Haman. I can't believe this. Mordecai? What does Haman think about that? Oh, that's Haman. Carrying him along. <laughs> leading the procession. I mean, this is played out in the public forum. The humiliation for Haman. How he must have been feeling. From up there to down there in a literally matter of moments. Pride cometh before a fall. He'd have been completely distraught. And after the event, Mordecai, says verse 12, came again to the king's gate. What's that mean? He just goes back to work. He's like, right, this was good, but you know, work to be done. Off he goes. Haman, on the other hand, look at verse 12, hasted to his house. Where's he going? He's run away to hide away. Notice having his head covered. Humiliated, full of shame. And he runs back. And where does he go to? He goes back to his safe space. Verse 13. Haman told Zeresh, his wife, and all his friends everything that had been fallen him. Now remember, chapter number 5, these guys were his cheerleaders. These guys were the guys that came along and said, Haman, you know what? You're great. You're magic. You're the man, Haman. Get rid of that Mordecai. Come up with a, a gallows. Build it and put him on it, on it. Kill him. Get him out of the way. Out of your hair. Be done with him, Haman. Because you deserve better than this. You can't have this one man causing you this much aggro. aggro. You're Haman. You're important. But this time, the cheerleaders have changed their tune. This time, verse 13, 
Then said his wise men and Zeresh his wife unto him, If Mordecai be of the seed of the Jews, before whom thou hast begun to fall, thou shalt not prevail against him, but shall surely fall before him. Where's the yes man gone now? There's a lesson here. Because you see this in society today. People that when things are going well for you, want to jump on the bandwagon and tell you what you want to hear. But when things start to turn around, the same people that cheerlead you one day will tell you the next that they're not with you, that you're in trouble, that actually you're not what you thought you were, and they don't have any time for you. That's the way the world works. People like to jump on the popularity band. You know, I... I like football, you know that, even though it frustrates the life out of me. But I take pride in my team at times, because we did win again last night, but there you go. And we beat Manchester United. I didn't say that enough, but we did beat Manchester United 3-0. Anyway, moving on. But I do, you know, um, think about these things. So, when, when, in football particularly... And, you know, I'm old enough now, and I look at these players that are retired... And the, the, the stories that they will tell are, are really quite miserable. A lot of them will tell stories of playing and being paid lots of money and having people around them all the time. And the same people will tell the story that when the career stopped and the money stopped flowing, the injuries came and they had to retire early or whatever it may be, Jimmy and Pennant is a good example, if you know his story, he'll play for Stoke. Um, and say, you know, it was rich and then becomes bankrupt. No money coming in. They haven't uh, any kind of career that they can go into other than football. It was their life. This injury comes in. The money goes. And the one thing they'll all say, same with the lottery winners, same with, same with celebrities, that when the, 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 the sun starts to fade on that person's popularity, on that person's career, is that the rats just run away. And the person that seemed like they had a lot of people around them ends up with nobody. Haman here goes to the people that he thought had his back. He goes to the people that had told him yes last time. Now, when he goes to them, they, say, they basically say, oh, you're in trouble, but you're being. You're being. So the lesson for us, I think, is that we choose our friends wisely. We think about these things honestly. And we make sure that the people in our lives are good and godly people. Because when we surround ourselves with the world, don't be surprised when the world behaves in this way. Here today, gone tomorrow. Now we have a friend that sticks closer than a brother, the one that will never leave us nor forsake us, the Lord Jesus Christ. But that should be also true of his people. So my, 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 my challenge and little application is that is choose your friends well. Make sure they're God's people. Because they are the best people. Haman here is now in trouble. He's nowhere to run. Nobody that's going to tell him what he wants to hear. And then verse 14, even when he's been told this news, I mean, talking about going from bad to worse, 
He's been ashamed. He's, he's been mocked. He's been humiliated. And he goes home to his wife and to his friends for a little pat in, pat in the back, a little rub to say, Do you know what? It's okay, Haman. Tomorrow's a new day. And he gets that tomorrow isn't a new day and that tomorrow's a doomed day. You're in trouble. And even as he gets that news, the king's chamberlains arrive and haste to bring Haman onto the banquet that Esther had prepared. So there we have chapter number six of Esther. And it began with some bedtime reading. There's little things that God's doing and then it ends with Mordecai being led through the streets, paraded through the streets by Haman, his enemy. This is a story of twists and tails and ups and downs and backs and forths. Literally cliffhanger after cliffhanger as we read through it. But as we leave chapter 6, what can we take away? What can we take as application tonight? Well, hopefully you've picked up number one, that pride truly does come before a fall. Pride is a terrible thing. And unfortunately, it lies within us all. So we need to guard ourselves against it. We need to watch out for it and not let it take root in our lives. And then secondly, we see that God works through all circumstances. But here's the truth, especially in the small things. Especially in the small things. And as I've said, you know, we see God in the big things, but the small things... We miss him. But God is doing it all the time. I've said this before and I'll say it again. When we get to heaven and if we ask the Lord, Lord, how often did you intervene and work in my my life? I think each and every one of us will be blown away at the level of interaction the Lord has had in our lives, even in the little things. I think every time I get in a car and drive everywhere, How often is the Lord working to keep me safe? Claire goes up and down the M6, and I know she's an advanced driver, very qualified, but she goes up and down the M6, and I worry about her. But the Lord keeps her safe. Keeps her safe. Keeps her safe. I don't know about the 10-car pile-up she leaves behind her, but she's all right. When I worked for... um, that company that I was director, I used to travel up and down all the time, all hours, everywhere. And the Lord kept me safe. Small things. God's working. You know, as I've got older, I start to appreciate that more. I appreciate God when he's working in the small things. I appreciate God when he allows me to have a parking space in a place where it doesn't seem like there's any and you're losing your mind because you need... The Lord can work in those small things. These small things that happened in Esther turned out to be big things, but God's in it. So God, he works through all circumstances, but especially the small things. We just need to look for it. And then sometimes we won't see it until later on down the line. And then God will reveal what he was doing then and why he was doing it to bring it into the open now. 
That's what we find in chapter number 6. The hand of God has been moving. Mordecai wasn't rewarded uh, all those years ago for what he did, but now is the time, such a time that God can use that so that uh, Haman, that enemy, is, is, is dispatched. And we're going to see that when we pick up next time round. Because we move from chapter number 6 to chapter number 7, and what we're going to see is simply what a difference a day makes whenever God's hand is in it. Let's pray. Heavenly Father.